Warning, this episode contains explicit language. This podcast series will share personal moments of connection and deeply felt experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. Or remember, you can phone Lifeline at any time on 13 11 14. LGBTIQ plus community, you know, the figures are saying that, that it's five times higher that they will potentially self-harm as opposed to, to their, you know, their straight peers. I would be surprised if anyone my age, there would be anyone who didn't know someone that had a self-harm or, or taken their own life. Uh, yeah, that's not, yeah that, that in itself is kind of a scary statistic. Welcome to Lifeline's Holding On To Hope, a podcast series in which those who have reached a dark place share their stories of how they found joy in life again. As part of the Out of the Shadows campaign, we talk here to International Rugby League star Ian Roberts. During a stellar career, which saw him play for South, Manly and the Cowboys, Ian was renowned for being a hard and ferocious competitor. However, for many, he's regarded as an even greater champion for being the first male professional athlete to come out as gay and for his ongoing support of the LBGTQI community. Hi Ian, for those few people who don't know you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is uh, is Ian Roberts. I um, I suppose I have a, a bit of a profile here within Australia uh, because I um, I'm a, a rugby league player. I played uh, through the late '80s and up until I think I retired in '99. I had quite a good career. I was you know fortunate enough to um, uh, play at State of Origin and play for, play for the country. Went on a kangaroo tour. I also had a season at Wigan. I suppose my um, my profile became a bit elevated, uh, intense. <laughs> I don't know what word to use. I mean, I uh, I did um, came to the to the greater public's attention in 1994, 95 when I came out as a gay man. Uh, I was playing for Australia at the time, and obviously that was uh, was kind of I, I wouldn't say rock the boat, but it, it did unsettle things in the greater community a little but you know overall I think I was well supported by the rugby league community I mean I did it personally for myself and and just not wanting to hide the truth I mean I did realize it was going to have some sort of impact but I didn't realize how big an impact it would have I also didn't realize that uh, up until this date you know in the major sports within Australia there's still been no other uh, male in a professional team sport uh, at the level I played at to have come out it was quite a story when you were playing football, you were renowned and you played for the Raptors, you played for Manly, you played for Townsville Cowboys. And during that time, you were renowned as an absolutely fearless and fearsome competitor. You know, like you were astounding on the field. But obviously, there must have been some struggle for you. Like you've described your, your being gay, I know, as the worst kept secret in football. And yet... You did keep it a secret. And why was that? Was that because you were worried about your own acceptance? Were you struggling with your own acceptance or were you worried about others' acceptance of you? I've always been, um, as far back as, as I can remember, I've always been same-sex attracted. So it's never, and I've never, I've never personally had an issue with it. I, I knew uh, instantly, but growing up that way, that it was, you know, it, it wasn't the preferred choice. I mean, I remember a situation, I was seven years old, and my dad and I were sitting um, watching the TV, uh, and there was a show called Checkboard, which was a, this is 1972 now, 
and it was the first time that uh, two men, uh, it was a documentary about, about homosexuals and gay life, two men had kissed on TV. And I was sitting next to my dad, and I remember watching the, watching the TV and, and feeling connected to whatever they were doing. I just knew I was, I was of, of the same make as, as those men on the TV. But uh, my dad said, and forgive my language, I've got to, I'll, I'll use the language you use, they make my fucking skin creep. I, I instantly knew it was that it was not the way to be. So how did that affect how you felt? Being gay as I grew up it didn't really affect me, my sense of self. My, my, my problems with uh, not being able to read and write, that was far greater. Like I was, ter- I was always ashamed of it. I, was always, I always felt dumb growing up. That, that sensation of not being able to read and write and the consequences and the difficulties that gave me uh, and just the sense of shame that I always felt for not being able to read and write, that was far greater and that was far more hurtful for me as a person and more damaging to my sense of self than my sexual identity or anything like that. That must have been difficult for you, Ian. So then how did you feel about coming out? In 1989, I, uh, I signed a play with Manly in 1990 and I promised myself that uh, when, I, when I left South to go to Manly, uh, that I was going to come out and, and be honest and be open about it. It was going to be a, 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 fresh, a fresh start. But in 1990, over in England, Justin Fashionew, uh, who was a Premier League player, soccer player, uh, came out. And back then, there was no internet and no World Wide Web, so we used to have to keep get our news you know, via uh, TV, paper or radio. I kept abreast of that and what was happening. And Justin was... The English press brutalised him. They they were savage to him. The uh, the the fans of the game were very cruel to him as well. In um, Justin retired in 1994, and uh, took his own life in 1998. He was such a hero to me from start to the, the demise of his of, of him taking his own life. I mean, he's still a hero to me now. But I do remember when Justin came out and and the way he was received by the English media and the British supporters of the game. It terrified me. That's why I didn't come out. It was like it was another four years before I came out in 94 on the uh, Kangaroo Tour. That was also the year that Justin retired. What happened when you came out? I was quite open uh, about my sexuality, even in my private life uh, from an early age. I was um, I, I used to go to clubs through you know, my teenage years, gay clubs. And right all the time when I started playing with South and that as well, uh, playing first grade with South, my mum and dad would come to every game, but they would hear things from the crowd. The crowd would shout things out quite offensive, uh, as you can imagine. Um, I mean, but, that, you know, in saying this also, um, I think if, if I'd had red hair, it would have been about the red hair. If I'd been a, a person of colour, it would have been about that. If I'd been someone who was overweight, it would have been about that. I think a, a lot of people, a lot of the crowd back then, used just trying to get under your skin, that they'd heard something potentially and they were just trying to use it to get you off your game or whatever it was. But still, there are certain things you can't protect um, people from. As my mum and dad, I couldn't protect them from what was being said in the crowd. The reason, I mean, the reason I came out was, uh, one again, it's one of those stories. It's, it's just, you never really know who you're talking to. And I, casual language, I call it casual language. You know, if, you're, uh, if you can hear a conversation and it's offensive to you, then you're part of that conversation. You know, what you're willing to walk by is what you're willing to accept. And so just be aware of what you say affects people. Oh, it can affect so many people unbeknownst to you. My mum used to work at Qantas, and she was at lunch one day, and uh, there was two boys sitting opposite her in the lunch yet, reading an article about me in the paper, not knowing that my mum was sitting opposite me. And one of the boys said to the other that, and I'm going to use the same language because this is the language <laughs> that my mum had happened to, to deal with at the time, 
Um, and I wasn't out to my, my, my family at this stage, but my mum and dad, like I said, had been to all my go to, used to go to all my games. So they used to hear a lot of the offensive language that was sometimes sprouted about me at games. One of the boys said to the other boy, reading this, reading the paper, oh, that's Ian Roberts. He got caught sucking some guy off in Oxford Street. And my mum, who was having mental health issues at the time anyway, uh, it was devastating to my mum. I mean, obviously, you know, I try try to say, you know, obviously my mum didn't believe what they were saying, but it's still, that's how I had to come out to my parents with the fact that that I got home from training and got a phone call from my dad. He said, look, boy, you need to come around to your mum and mother and father's. Your mum says something at work. So that was my conversation with my mum, obviously. I mean, I told in the end, my dad just says, you know, boys, boy, we don't believe what we hear. We just want to hear you say that you're not gay and that'll, that's good enough for us. Well, I just at that stage, I just, I was, I just had enough. I just said, no, dad, I'm gay. Um, And I just remember that moment. And I think anyone in my situation or or the coming out story has that moment they remember. I felt like I was, I was like, dissolving into the TV, as I said it, because my, my mum didn't handle the news very well and my dad didn't handle the news very well. That was very hard for them. I mean, I went through a period of time for about two or three years after that where we kind of lost touch. I kind of lost my touch with my parents and my family. Uh, but that is quite a familiar story in, in the, you know, in the LGBTIQ plus community. I was always comfortable with being gay. Uh, but I always knew it was frowned upon and it was, it was not accepted and it, it, it wasn't um, going to be an easy trip. Where were you in this journey when you actually rang Lifeline that first time then? The first time was, it was, about, it was probably about a year and a half after coming out with my family. I was um, just feeling really alone. Um, I'd had a business failure as well, um, but it, it was just one of those moments the whole time leading up to that was probably a month or two leading up to, that, to making that phone call. Though I was just feeling incredibly desperate and unsure of everything and unsure of myself. I just really rang just to talk to someone. That, I mean, that was, I had contemplated self-harm, but it was, I, was, I think I was just calling. I was a, a lot more desperate than I thought I was. But I was, I, mean, I remember that the loneliness I was feeling just, and just, not not being able not having being able to talk to someone that, that wasn't I wasn't connected to was probably more important to me at that stage. Can you remember how the phone call went, Ian? I do remember feeling an incredible amount of relief when I hung the phone up and just like like, like I just inhaled. I'd been holding my breath for like twenty minutes, or, or that I was gasping, or that. And I remember that that sensation of oh, someone someone just listened to me, like being listened to. Um, I don't I don't know what that is, but that of just being validated that someone listened to me and um yeah i, I you know it, it, it's weird i was trying to recall the the, the conversation I, I i was i remember part of the conversation just talking about feeling like i was isolated but being very alone and i just felt like i was alone all the time even though i wasn't i mean i don't know that's how i was feeling and if you feel something then it's justified but i mean i, I look back and i know i wasn't at that time alone but i was feeling incredibly isolated and 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 just yeah, the, the, just the need to talk to someone that I didn't have to validate myself to all the time. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, as you said, you weren't alone, but presumably there was no one else you could unload on. It is it is amazing how difficult it is. Uh, it's, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that sense of, of isolation and and feeling like, you, you know, it, it, it might sound a bit um, corny to say, but like you're the only one in the world who might be, Feeling like you're the yeah, feeling like you're the only one in the world at that moment who's 
who's who's going through that. It's uh, and just how scary that is. Also, it's like the sense of being alone and and not knowing what you, or what's in front of you or if there's anything in front of you or if you want to be a part of that or, or yeah, I'm, I'm such an advocate for, 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 for just sharing, yeah. Through connecting with others, we can hold on to hope. To speak to a crisis supporter, please call 13 11 14, 24 hours, seven days a week. Can you tell me about the second time that you called Lifeline and about the events that led up to that call? I had retired about four years earlier, retired from football. I definitely missed the game and there was a real void in my life. Um, the camaraderie, just the routine of training and, and that whole professional, the, this of what I did, I was now not, not a part of that. It was almost like a, my sense of self was a, kind of damaged about who I was. I had also just recently split up with my partner. At that time, a business that I had been involved with had just, had just finished as well. I also had uh, substance abuse issues. I know I was in a bad place. I mean, looking back, it's it's almost like a fog, looking back into a fog. Um, but I, I do know I desperately needed a lifeline in that situation. And again, just the sensation of someone listening to me and validating me and not judging me was what changed changed my situation. Yeah, it empowered me when I was when I put the phone down. I, because we spoke for a long time. Yeah, I spoke for a long time the second time. It was, um, and it was just, yeah, I felt, I mean, I don't know if, if, if worthy is, is the word I'm looking for, but I did feel, I, I felt like I was worth something. I'm worthy uh, to be here. No one should ever have to face their darkest moments alone. Lifeline is here to help. Please call 13 11 14 or visit lifeline.org.au. When I got off the phone for that second time, years lifeline in the early 2000s, it it felt like I had a real change in my life. And did it literally? Sometimes, all you just need you just need someone to listen to. You just need someone to talk to, regardless where you sit financially, or or, or culturally, or professionally. Uh, sometimes, just having a voice on the end of, end of the phone who's who's caring, and that's I mean, it's so easy. Let's just and who's kind. That's I mean. Um, yeah, just be kind. It's just like, how many times have you heard that? It's just, uh, just be kind. You've gone on to have a stellar career in in acting. You've learned to read and write. You've, I mean, you you're astounding in so many ways. It was 2001. My car had broken down about 100 yards up the road from NIDA, the National Institute of Dramatic Arts uh, in Kensington, and I was actually just walking by NIDA. To, up to a service station to get someone to help me with my car. And I just thought I'd go, I'd go in tonight and see if there's someone there uh, who could help me maybe do some um, acting classes. Uh, I met a gentleman by the name of Kevin Jackson. I hadn't really thought of enrolling in the um, degree there because I thought I'd be too old. But after like three or four months of, of some uh, one-on-one classes with Kevin, Kevin suggested it. So that's what I did. I, I auditioned for the uh, three-year course and got in. I'd always loved art. I mean, sport kind of took off for me as a kid and, and through my teenage years and obviously in my early 20s professionally, but I'd always loved uh, acting. And so it was almost like out of default, I fell back into that. I've been doing that ever since. Um, but I will say if I had to survive on my uh, my acting uh, credits and, and paychecks, I'd go pretty hungry. <laughs> I want to talk to you then about how you've used that, though, with your theatre sports and your um, your work with football teams to tackle some of the issues 
the level of profile I have does serve as a platform. Uh, and I've almost taken that on as kind of a bit of responsibility to, to talk about these, uh, particularly being an advocate for the uh, LGBTIQ plus community, but also things with uh, learning difficulties. If it can bring any sort of awareness to any of the, the, these, this subject matter, then it's a positive thing. I mean, um, I keep saying that I, I'm fully behind having a, you know, having a conversation, talking and, and, and just awareness. So tell me a little bit more about the Think About It program. I'm part of a program. Uh, it's called Think About It. It's kind of a theatre sports program for the NRL. People are aware of what theatre sports is. Just me and, a, and some friends really came up with the idea. They've been playing around with the idea, and I, uh, because I'm in uh, NRL all the time, uh, it just kind of evolved, really. Three friends were together. We need another actor. It ended up being four of us. Uh, we came up with some scenarios, and the scenarios are all based around misogyny, homophobia, uh, self-harm, uh, social media, gambling, drugs. Anyway, the four actors know what's going on in the scenes. We get three or four players up involved, and hopefully they can navigate and negotiate the scenes in a positive way. Uh, and it's also, even if they don't do it in a positive way, if they get it wrong, it's a safe place to get it wrong because we then talk about the scene and how better that should have been handled or how they should have or could have manoeuvred around the um, the scene in a much more positive way. It's great. Like it's, We've been doing that for like oh, five years now. Uh, well, obviously not for the last year and a half because of the whole COVID thing. But um, yeah, that's <laughs> that's pretty par for course for everyone at the moment. Do you know what sort of impact you've had through that? Because I can imagine that in the NRL community in particular or any kind of fairly uh, macho, for want of a better word, community, you would have a huge impact. We've been doing it now for, for at least five years. So, uh, and the NRL is still rolling out. I mean, and we, we come up with fresh ideas every year. It's an evolving situation all the time. Uh, and it, once again, it's... Um, it's, it's a, I mean, it sounds a bit corny to say, but it's a safer environment for the players. It's a safer environment for them to get the situation wrong because we we then discuss the situation. And I'm, in saying that, like 99% of the times the players get it right. But, you know, there is, you know, it's, it's that odd time that they um, choose a bad option that does create the most interesting conversation. Does it help you to be this voice? Because, you know, there is love, something very... Like you said, you needed to be validated earlier on. And there's nothing more validating than knowing that you've helped somebody else, I think. It's such a privilege. Honestly, it's such a privilege to be in this situation that potentially you can help. With that privilege, but becomes some responsibility and it's following through it's, it, and it's being open to having these conversations that you and I are having now. And, and we hear people say it all the time, but if you can help one person, then that's, that, that's wonderful. You know, like it's a wonderful thing. I mean, I appreciate it at that level. And if it, if it goes on to be more than that, it's even better. But that, that almost comes back to to using a service like Lifetime. You know, like one person is all it takes, you know, and, and that can make all the difference to a person as well. It, one, that one person is willing to listen and, and, or, or willing to have a conversation with you or willing, or willing to talk about something that, um, openly. I, th I think that's where we can make the biggest gains. And I, and I think that's why Lifeline is so fantastic because people will talk to you openly and honestly about stuff. That's validating in itself. So, yeah, I mean, I, I hope it doesn't sound corny, but if it does help you know, one person, it's well worth it.
No, it doesn't at all. And I've spoken to so many people now who have been on the verge of making an attempt. And it's interesting, the smallest thing that will turn them around. Just come and have a cup of tea with me, oh, you know, and, yep. and we'll just have a talk about it. Something as small as that, you know, come and have a cup of tea with me. It's, you know, it seems like a nothing thing, doesn't it? But can save a life. No, absolutely. I mean, it's and, and nothing's too small. What I mean by that is what might seem too much isn't. You've just got to be willing to have that conversation. It's okay to share. It's okay to speak up. What advice would you give to someone who finds themselves in that lonely position you were in when you called Lifeline both occasions? It's it's okay. Like, it's okay to call. The first time I, I, I called Lifeline back in the early 90s, I remember having a bit, bit of a conflict thinking, am I wasting someone's time? It's always worth it. It's always worth it. It's okay to call. Uh, I don't know how else to put it into words, but it's nothing that's too small to talk about. And if you are presented with someone who's, or you know someone and you think they're struggling, what would you advise someone who who is not sure how to help? What would you say to them? I would ask them, if has that person ha- had uh, thoughts about self-harm? Has that person had thoughts about taking their own life? And um, not being afraid to ask that question can make all the difference. So looking back now on your life, Ian, how do you feel about what you've you've, got has been an extraordinary life? How do you feel looking back on your life and how do you feel about the place that you're in now? I'm in a great place now. Yeah, I'm I'm very fortunate to have been able to help others too, but just with speaking openly and honestly about my life. It's a privilege. This conversation can help other people. Like I'm, you know, I have a wonderful, wonderful relationship with my partner. My, my, I have a wonderful relationship with my family. My, one of the nicest moments, best moments in my life was my dad saying in an interview, this is many years later and just a few years before he passed away, my dad passed away seven years ago, that um, he, he was, he had four children, loved all his children the same, but, and he's, he felt blessed to, to, to have had a gay son because he got to see the world as it really is. Like that must have moved you beyond belief to hear your dad say that, and unexpected, I would think. Would you, would you? Is there advice you would give to, particularly to family members who maybe have said something unkind? You know, in that it is never too late. Oh, oh yeah, it's one. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's it's one of those moments, those reaffirming moments. It's never too late to reach out. It's it's never too late to reach out to anyone. I mean, we've all said and done things that, in hindsight, not done. It's okay to reach out. Like, it's never too late to reach out. Thank you for listening to Holding On To Hope. Lifeline Australia is grateful to all our interviewees who share their stories in the hope of inspiring others. We also acknowledge all of you who provide support to people in crisis and those on their journey to recovery. If you found this podcast helpful or inspiring, please share it, rate it, write a review or subscribe wherever you download your favourite podcasts. If this story has affected you and you require crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can do this at any time or visit lifeline.org.au to access web chat every night from 7pm to midnight. If it's inspired you to be a Lifeline volunteer or to donate, please visit lifeline.org.au. With thanks to Wahoo Creative for interviews, editing and production and the voice of lived experience, which is essential in the development of our work.